I thought that I would bring some of you up to date as some have not been here in a while and we have not been in this study for several weeks. But we are in the middle, no, actually we're towards the end of a study on what we have called the fundamentals of forgiveness. We began by seeing what we call the essence of forgiveness. That is, what is this thing of forgiveness all about? Why do we need to be forgiven? And what are we to be forgiven of or from? And we saw from the scriptures that it is sin that needs to be forgiven. When the Bible speaks of forgiveness, it is speaking of forgiveness from our sins. And we saw then in the scriptures or from the scriptures, what is sin? If we need to be forgiven of sin, what is sin? So we spent several weeks studying the scriptures. And one of the primary definitions of sin is sin is lawlessness, a breaking of the law of God. We break God's law, and therefore it is sin against God. So God is the one who must forgive sins. And we saw that this is shown in the scriptures, that if we are to be those who go to heaven, to be in the presence of God, our sin, our unholiness must be forgiven. It must be blotted out. We must be, it must be paid for in order for us to be in the presence of the thrice holy God. You cannot go to heaven if you are not forgiven. And so Jesus came and taught that the predominant need of man was to have their sins forgiven. We see him dealing with that paralytic that was lowered down from the roof and placed in the middle of the, of the room where he was. And the first thing that Jesus said to the man was not, well, get up, be healed, and be healthy and wealthy. It was your sins are forgiven. The greatest need of that paralytic was not to be healed, it was to be forgiven. And so we see even our Lord teaching that men need to be forgiven. We went from the essence of forgiveness to the existence of forgiveness. That we see from the scripture that God is depicted not as a God who is harsh and mean as some people today teach that God is the one who is responsible for all the troubles and all the wars and all the murders in the world. It's all God's responsibility. No, God is seen in the scriptures as a forgiving God. And we spoke to this as we mentioned the alacrity of God. And that word just means his eagerness, his willingness to forgive sins. We saw this about God in the Old Testament. We saw it about Jesus in the New Testament. And we went from the alacrity of God to forgive to the authority of God to forgive sins. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. What did the scribes and the Pharisees say? Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is a man? He can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So what gave Jesus the authority to forgive sins? He is God. He was the promised Messiah. God with us. And so Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. And we went from seeing the authority to forgive sins to his activity to forgive sins. 
Where did Jesus pay your sin debt? On the cross. As he was dying, he was dying there to set men free, to redeem them. And that's what redemption means. To be set free from the bondage of sin by the payment of another. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the sin debt that men should be set free and be forgiven. We are now considering the reality of the evidence of forgiveness. The essence of forgiveness, the existence of forgiveness, and currently the evidence of forgiveness. And by that, what I'm saying is that Scripture teaches that when men are genuinely and truly forgiven, when men understand what it means to be forgiven, and all that Christ has done to forgive them, there will be evidence of that in their lives. The spurious teaching of our day that men can be saved and still live like the devil is unbiblical, and it is indeed heresy. Jesus taught that there are two roads, and it is the broad road where men live like the devil. It is only the narrow road that leads to glory that men will be upon who are saved. And there is not all that frivolity and that wickedness on that narrow road. And so we're looking at the evidence of forgiveness. When one is saved by the wrath of God, it will be evident in him. And we're looking only at the first area that we have seen so far. And that first reaction that we have seen was what we called heartfelt appreciation. And next week it will overflow into what we see in the Scriptures as love. But heartfelt appreciation. And all of these kind of go together. You've got the appreciation and the love, and it kind of boils over or flows over into worship. And that's what we saw two weeks ago or several weeks ago when we dealt with that passage in Luke chapter 7 in what we call the known sinner giving evidence of forgiveness. And that was that woman that came while Jesus was there at the home of the Pharisee. And Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. And this woman came and anointed his feet and wept over his feet and wiped his feet with her hair, evidence of forgiveness, adoration for the one who forgave her. And we made the point as we went through the text that what she was doing was obvious evidence, even though Jesus hadn't pronounced her forgiven until the end of the account. But it was what was taking place since he was the sovereign God who knew exactly what was going on, who drew her even to that place. And she was overflowing with appreciation and adoration for what Jesus did in forgiving her of her sins. We also looked at the contrast between what she did and what the Pharisee there did as well. And this is what we find so much of in our day. People who are religious, as that Pharisee was, religious. They go to church. They're regular attenders at church. But is there heartfelt appreciation and love 
for the work of Christ and what He has done for me in forgiving my sins. And what we find so much of today is more than a heartfelt appreciation. It's more like hardness of heart. It's noon, preacher. We got to go. And we find that people are more concerned with their own comfort than they are in considering what Christ has done to save them from their sins. The contrast was that this Pharisee was completely indifferent towards Christ, showed none of the things that the woman who was called a sinner showed. He did not greet Jesus with a kiss. He did not wash Jesus' feet. He did not anoint Jesus, but she did. The one who is forgiven much, loves much. Now, we went into that passage several weeks ago. I can't go into it much further, but we move on today to see our next example of heartfelt appreciation as we turn to what I would call the one or the nine. Luke chapter 17 in your Bibles, please. The one or the nine. Now, this is a text that we looked at several years ago, four or five years ago, yet it is most applicable to our current study on forgiveness, showing a proper response. So I just couldn't leave it out. It's a great text anyway. Luke 17, look down to verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Let's take this passage apart a little bit. I'll begin by telling you that here in the 21st century, we're not very familiar with this disease known as leprosy. It's not very common in our day, but in Jesus' day, leprosy was familiar, and it was common, and a lot more common, at least, shall I say, than today. The fact of the matter is, it was likely the most dreaded disease you could get. It was horrible, and it had horrible ramifications. Let me briefly describe a little bit about leprosy. It usually began with a pain in part of the body. And it did not discriminate as to where that might be, but oftentimes you see hands or feet that would become swollen And what happens is the skin begins to discolor. 
the skin begins to turn scaly. It swells. It thickens. It oftentimes affected parts of the face around the eyebrows or the ears. If you've ever seen pictures, it's pretty horrific. They had disformities. Their faces would become all bunched up. But it didn't only affect the exterior. It affected how you felt. It became difficult for you to see. It affected every area of your physical being. Because the skin would bunch up, you couldn't see. Because your ears would swell, you couldn't hear. You would definitely have a bad taste in your mouth. And as your extremities rotted, you certainly had a bad smell in your nose. It was horrible. The discomfort that you would feel. Your vocal cords would become weak because of the throat swelling. And oftentimes you could barely speak. But not only did leprosy affect every area of your physical being, it affected every area of your social life. These lepers were outside the gate, outside the city. You weren't allowed in the city if you were a leper. People didn't want leprosy. People didn't want to get it. And so they would not keep you, they would not allow you to be in the city. You would keep to yourself. And when one came near, you would cry, Unclean! Unclean! And if you were a Jew, not only were you kicked out of the city, you were kicked out of the synagogue, ostracized from your own faith and religion, out of the temple, out of worship. And it was a sign of judgment of God against you. The mind of the Jew was that this was God's judgment against you. Against you, you were marked as a sinner and disgraced because you had leprosy. So how would you feel if you had leprosy? It was a serious, difficult, life-altering, life-changing disease. I can't even imagine what it would be like today, let alone in the day of our Lord 2,000 years ago. So then let me ask you, suppose you had this, all the bunched up eyes and the deformed face and the fingers, you know, they they talk about the fingers falling off. Uh, Some things I read were that, that the fingers don't actually fall off. They're usually eaten off. And because you lose sensitivity and pain. So it's not just that they fall off, but they're eaten by whatever might be there to eat your fingers. What would you do to get rid of this disease? What end would you go to to be cleansed and cured? And then if you were... 
what would your response be to the one who cured you? This is what we see in this text. Let's take a look at it here. As he's entering the village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. They were, they were right enough to not come right up to our Lord. They stayed away at a distance. But now look at verse 13. They raised their voices saying, Jesus! Remember, this affected your vocal cords. Thus, they raised their voices with perhaps what little voices they had left. They cried out to Jesus. And they cried out to Him for mercy. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. All ten cried out to Jesus for mercy. All ten called him by name. Jesus, Master. Obviously, they knew who he was. That's why they were calling out to him. Here is our hope. Jesus of Nazareth, the great healer, has come. And they cried out to him, Jesus, Master, Lord. It was actually an acknowledgement of who he was as Messiah. Jesus, Master, they knew him. And they all had the same need. Have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy. Mercy on us. Listen. All ten of these men knew what they had. All ten of these men knew that they were going to die from this disease. All ten of them knew what they had. All ten of them knew what it meant to have leprosy. There was no escaping it. They had all experienced the pain, the grief, the sorrow. There was no room for any pride as if they would say, well, you know, uh, my leprosy is not so bad. Just so I got half the finger. My, my leprosy is not so bad. I'm not so bad. It's really not so bad. I'm certainly, my leprosy's not as bad as his leprosy. No room for that. They all had it. And they all knew what it meant. They all knew that there was no cure. They all knew that there was no way that they could help themselves. And they all knew that there was no center for disease control working on a cure, and that any day now they would come through with a breakthrough. None of that. They knew what they had, and they knew what it meant. A life-changing, life-altering disease with absolutely no escape and no hope. So their only hope was 
what we read in this text. They raise their voices. Jesus, Master, have mercy. This was their only chance. Their only hope was the mercy of Jesus. So they all cried out. Now, do I have to go through much to make the application from this disease to your disease? You may not have leprosy, but you all have sin. It's the same. And don't mistake the fact that this is a picture of the cleansing from sin. All of us are sinners. There is no escaping it. There is no denying it. As we saw in the text that we looked at in the definition of sin and that all men are sinners. All of us are sinners. Which one of you can pillow your head at night and say, I haven't sinned today? When the scriptures teach that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with all of our being, we all fall short. We all lust. We all covet. We're all sinners. So don't go, well, my, my sin's not so bad. My sin's not as bad as his sin's. It is a life-changing, life-altering understanding. You're a sinner. And it means death. Eternal death. Without God. In hell. That's what sin means. You cannot go to be into the presence of God with sin that is unforgiven. And we are all sinners. We all have this dreaded sin, and it means death. And there is only one hope. Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Not justice. Mercy. Not what I deserve. I'm unworthy. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve being cleansed. Mercy. Have mercy on me. Now they all cried out for mercy. And in this passage we find that they were all mercifully healed. Now, even though Jesus was entering the village, we see that in verse 12, which means that he was likely weary from the journey, would have liked to have gotten a little rest. He did not brush them off. He did not push them aside. We read in verse 14 that he saw them, And he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. Go show yourself. He doesn't even touch them. By the power of the spoken word, Jesus tells them, go. Now remember, leprosy was considered by the Jews to be a mark of of sin and disgrace. 
that you were marked as a sinner because you had leprosy. It's from God. It's judgment. You're a leper. You're a sinner. You're a wicked person. That's why you have this leprosy. And so Jesus says to them, to these who would have been considered the worst of sinners with God's displeasure upon them, go. And we know in the text that they're all healed. Why would that be? Jesus came to save sinners. Not the righteous, but sinners. None of these guys could deny what they had. They all knew they had it. And Jesus came to save sinners. And so he tells them, go with a display of free, cleansing, pardon of sin. And also a dig to the Jews and the Pharisees who would hear about this. Jesus sent them away. And by the power of his spoken word, we read, as they were going, verse 14, they were cleansed. The they inclusive of all ten. All ten of them were cleansed by the power of his spoken word. He didn't touch them. He just said, go. I mean, I say this as well. This is a picture of salvation, too. You can't do something to earn it. You can't work to earn your salvation. It is the free gift of the mercy of God. All he said to them was, go. And as they're going, they are cleansed. None of the lepers said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not enough. Do something. Lay hands on me. Ask me to dunk in the river seven times. Tell me to do something. All he said was go. Show yourselves to the priests. And now the text says that on their way, as they were going, on their way, they suddenly were healed. Can you imagine that? Think with me about that, kids. Think what that was like. I described what leprosy was like. They probably didn't have a good time walking. I mean, I'm not being, I'm not making this up. They would be hunched over. They would be all bunched up and deformed. And all of a sudden, I can breathe. I can hear. I, I can see. My, my hands are, are back and, and they're not swollen. All of these things happened by the word of Christ and they were healed miraculously, amazingly healed from this dreaded disease. I always can't help but think about what that must have been like. Maybe they looked at him, look, look, Ahab, look, you are normal. What, whatever, that, all these things that they said to each other as they were going, we're healed. We're cleansed. We're free from this dreaded disease. And this is what happened. They could feel it. They could sense it. They could know. And there had to be unmistakable excitement and joy. And I believe with all of my heart 
that this is, at least should be, the same reaction that one who has been forgiven of his sins should feel. Excitement and joy. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I've set free from the bondage of sin. The burden of sin has fallen away. And I'm free. I can breathe. I can see the Word of God. I can hear the truth of God's Word. It is the experience of the true Christian when he has been forgiven of his sin that there will be excitement, that there will be joy for having been forgiven by our Savior. Hallelujah! I'm free. My sins have been forgiven. I'm healed. I had that deadly, deadly sin in my heart and in my life. And it's been healed. Is that your experience? You know what happens, unfortunately, is the longer that people go on in their Christian life, maybe that's what it used to be like. You know, back 30 years ago, when I first got saved, oh, I was excited. And now you become a crotchety old guy or woman in the church. Don't let that happen. Don't just keep going on and on and let this stuff become so familiar that it doesn't affect you. Every day we should wake up and praise God that I'm forgiven. I believe that these lepers would do that. Every day for the rest of their lives, they would wake up and say, Thank God I don't have leprosy anymore. Thank God I'm cleansed. That's what we should be like every day. The joy of our salvation should be real all the time. Even if you got saved when you were a kid, and you're a hundred years old now, it should still be a joyous event. I'm saved. I'm saved. Thank God. I'm saved. Praise God. Now, I know that all of these men were healed according to the text. It says so, that as they were going, they were cleansed. All of them were healed. But I don't believe that all of them were saved. Now, we know from other accounts in the Scriptures that Jesus healed a lot of people. He fed multitudes with miraculous Creation miracles of multiplying loaves and fishes. But not everyone that he fed was saved. You know that from John chapter 6. Not everyone he healed was saved. Some were, and some cried out, Crucify him! Some were, and some were not. I do not believe all ten of these men were, were saved. I know they were all healed, but I do not believe they were all saved. Now, I don't know that. The nine who went their way didn't do anything necessarily wrong. In fact, they did what Jesus told them to do. They went to show themselves to the priests. 
And that would have been an amazing sight too. Imagine those nine guys showing up at the temple. Here we are. We're, we're healed. Who did this to you? Jesus. That would have been enough to make their day. All of these men were healed. But I do believe that one man was definitely saved. And he was a Samaritan. Verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God, not now with a uh, a raised voice, as we read in uh, verse 13, but now with a loud voice, he comes back and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. You remember the Samaritans? You know what that's all about? Just real quick, take your Bibles and turn over. Just not too many pages to John chapter 4. Remember, Jesus was in Samaria. I mean, that's, that's where this all takes place. He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, in John chapter 4, we have the account of the woman at the well. And this is the woman of Samaria. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. This is verse 7 of John 4. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? You see, they didn't even talk to each other. Jews hated Samaritans. It even says, For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this is a dealing with the Samaritan that Jesus is having. Now, in a little bit of a study, we find that what happened was that the Samaritans, the people of this region, came and had a hard time all the way back with uh, Nehemiah and the building of the temple, approximately 400 years B.C., the, old, the uh, most recent books in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is not in chronological order. The most, the newest books in the Old Testament are like Nehemiah in there when they were rebuilding the temple. And the Samaritans had a problem with Nehemiah doing that. There was conflict and they started then building their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Now, that's why you read in this text, in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, see? And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. I can't resist but going on. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
Now back to 17 of Luke. He's a Samaritan. And he becomes a true worshiper. Whether on this mountain in Samaria or on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, God wants true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And this man fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. I said at the beginning that a lot of these will kind of flow and cross over into one another. And one of the genuine uh, examples of evidence of salvation or evidence of forgiveness will be worship. And this man has worship, as did that woman in the previous look, the woman who was a sinner. She had worship and adoration combined. And that's what it should be. You don't come here to put in your hour. You don't come here even to sing hymns or to hear a preacher preach. You come here to worship God, the one who has saved you from your sin. To give to Him worship that flows from a heart that has been changed and has adoration for God for what He has done. So there is adoration, there is love, and it flows out into worship. And that's why most of us can't wait till Sunday to express our love to God, our adoration to Him in worship. Oh, thank you, God, for cleansing me. And this is what this man did. The Samaritan fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. Appreciation for what Jesus has done. There cannot be, I say, a man, a woman, a boy or girl that has genuinely been saved by Christ through His grace and through His mercy that is not thankful. It's impossible. If you're not thankful to God, you don't understand what salvation is. And if you're not thankful to God, I fear you've not been saved. And as with that appreciation and that excitement that I described a moment ago, this adoration will never go away. And as you wake up every morning and you thank God that you are saved, and there's excitement and joy, there's also this adoration and this love. Thank you, thank you, God. Thank you for saving me. I didn't deserve it. Unworthy. Thank you. For saving me. And so we have this one who comes back with his newly restored voice, praising God, falling at his feet, and he tells Christ, Thank you. Now, what was Jesus' response to him? Jesus' response was, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine? Where are they? 
only one came back and gave what I would consider this proper response of a cleansed man. And so it's not that the Jews, the other nine, did anything wrong. But this was the proper response of a cleansed man to come back and to praise and thank Jesus for doing that. And we know that because of Jesus' response to him. Weren't there ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Well, we, we just went and did what you told us to do. There's a, a country today that has multitudes who are very religious. There's more than one country. There's a lot of countries who have people who are very religious. But their hearts are far from him. When Jesus said in John 4 that he desires men to worship him, who will worship him in spirit and in truth, what does it mean in spirit? It doesn't mean that you're going to go around like this and that shows that you're in spirit. In spirit means that you have a heart of flesh. That the heart of stone has been taken out and the heart of flesh has been put in. And that you are now a part of the spiritual kingdom of Jesus. And when you worship Him in spirit, you worship Him as those who understand what it means to be forgiven. And spiritual worship will include adoration and praise and glory and excitement as well as biblical truth, sound theology, spirit and in truth. I can't help but say it. We don't want to be the frozen chosen. We want to be the excited chosen. Worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Because Jesus says, where are the other nine? So what would you do? Would you be the one? Or would you be the nine? Religious? Going your way? Or genuinely changed? By what Jesus has done. Are you the one or the nine? Would you fall at his feet? And I believe that would be the proper response for one whose sins have been pardoned. Would you fall at his feet, thanking him? giving thanks to Him for what He has done. Are you the one or the nine? What answer would you give to Jesus? Why didn't you come back to thank me? What answer would you give Him? What would you say to Him? Why didn't you thank me for all that I've given you? for all that I have blessed you with. I believe that as this leper did, when you have been marvelously cleansed of your sins, the undeniable, the natural evidence of it will be adoration to Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus, for cleansing me of my sins. As he says here, Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. That's why I believe this guy was saved. Your faith has made you well. Has God, through His mercy in Christ, forgiven your sins, made you well? I ask you then, do you have this genuine adoration for the Savior who did it? How could you be so callous? I pray that indeed this is your response. That you are like the one who comes back and every day, every day, every day thanks God for saving me from my sin. Every day thanks Him that you'll spend eternity with Him because that sin has now been forgiven, so you are able to go into the presence of God for all eternity. What do you think you will be doing there every day? Thanking and praising God. So you should be beginning now. Every day, thanking and praising God as an expression of love and adoration and as evidence of your forgiveness. Amen? Let's pray.